0: Good evening. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gathering. Thank you for uh, people who are interested in the history of the church, people who love Christ. I pray for our time tonight, that it would be uplifting and meaningful, and that uh, you would be worshiped. That You would be worshiped even as we sit still and look over the history of the church. Um, Influence us, teach us, make us different, all for the better in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's take a look. Last week we went through a, a bunch of people. Here's a little map of uh how Christianity is spread by the early fourth century uh, that uh that kind of a wrap around the the old Roman Empire. Uh, you've got uh, the gospel went off to India, which is off the map, uh, North Africa, uh to the Tigris Euphrates valleys over off the map to England. The gospel has made its way into England even. Uh, You've got the Germanic barbarians in here, which were a constant threat to the Roman Empire. And we'll look at them in a a later lecture on the barbarian invasions. But uh, Christianity has spread quite, quite large. It's moved west. As I mentioned on Sunday, it moved from Jerusalem in the east to the west. And it will continue to make its way around the globe. And by the time it's done, when God is finished, it will make its way all the way around the globe back to Jerusalem. Here's where it's gone by AD 312. So if we review, we looked at Constantine rising to power. He moved his, um, his capital over to the old Byzantine Empire and called it after himself, Constantinople. Opal is a, uh, means city, Greek for city. Constantine, city, the city of Constantine. Through the Edict of Milan in AD 313, it wasn't an official thing where Christianity is now legal, but it was a toleration of Christianity. The desert monks and monasticism appeared because now Christianity is legal. We can't get in trouble for being a Christian. So the only way to actually suffer is to go out into the desert and live the Christian life. And that's why many of them did. And the rise of monasticism. You have the rise of a man named Arius who comes around and says, I don't think that Jesus is God. Jesus had a beginning. Uh, he wasn't in the beginning with God. He had an origin. And so the council of Nicaea met in 8325 at Constantine's behest, and they came up with a creed, which you looked at last week, that affirmed and confirmed what the Bible says about Jesus being God. Uh, We looked at men like Athanasius last week, John Chrysostom, Jerome, the great Cappadocians, which are Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Ambrose of Milan. Um, So can you remember all those? If I gave you a little pop quiz on those... So if I gave you a pop quiz on these people, these names, these are these are good names. These are the what we call the heavy hitters of our faith. This is what, this is how Christianity is not how it started, but these are the people that it passed to. These were great, mighty men, great theologians, knew the Bible, preached hard, died for their faith. And then uh, we left off last week with Augustine of Hippo, um, uh, three fifty four to four thirty. We'll pick up with him tonight as we look at this. So let's take a look at him. This is him with his mother. Uh, Monica, we know her because she prayed for him. Uh, you know, Most people know about Augustine, and if you've ever read about Augustine, you know about Monica, but uh, most people, I say most, many, will only know about the man. But the man was only as good as his mama's prayers. Don't you love that, mamas? He was born in North Africa. He became Bishop of Hippo, which is a, a town in North Africa. His father was a Roman official who was eventually led to Christ by Monica, his wife, um, who was... Augustus's mother. Uh, by the way, I call him Augustine. Um, you, you've heard him called Augustine. I just do it to separate him between a guy named Augustine that comes out of England. So I, I just I learned to separate him when I was doing church history. So it could just be easily be Augustine. Uh, you know, you see it every day if you live in South Texas in your grass, St. Augustine grass. You know, every time you look at it, you'll know it. He had a son out of wedlock. Uh, Augustine did, named Adiodotus, and you're thinking, what a strange name. It means, it's Latin for given by God. Given by God. Isn't that nice? The, uh, the Hebrew for given by God, or gift of God, is, anyone know? Matthew. No? no. That's gift of Good try, though. Oh. The gift of God. Nathaniel. Nathan means to give. Nathan. I-L, or E-L, is short for Elohim, given by God, or gift of God. Uh, while wrestling with the problem of evil, he became a Manichaean. He did the same thing that people do today. Why is there evil? If God is so good, if God is so good and so great, how can there be evil? Evil cannot exist alongside God. And if God is so great and evil does exist, why doesn't he get rid of it? Nope, yep, I'm done with God. So he goes to, uh, he follows a man named Mani, uh, a Persian man, and this system that came up after him called Manichaeanism. And uh, the Manichaeans believed in duality. There's, there's good and there's bad, and they fight constantly. And this helped him Uh, Try to sift through the the issue of of evil and good. Uh, It believes that one God created good, another God, lowercase G, created evil. Uh, That no one was responsible for his or her sins. Uh, He moved on from this. He was through all everything. If you've ever read anything by Augustine, you know that this man was brilliant. Uh, especially if you read it, what he wrote in Latin, I'm told, although I can't read Latin, so I I can't attest to that, but reading it in English is difficult enough. Uh, When you're reading someone brilliant, you read a couple pages and you go, I have no idea what I read. (laughs) I'm totally clueless, and uh, this is over my head. You're looking for the sports page. Uh, but he was brilliant, and these questions didn't stump him. They stumped him, but they made him think, and to continue to think. And what a blessing to the church he became through working through these issues. He did not remain a maniche. He became a Neoplatonist, uh, which if you've ever looked up Neoplatonism, he, it, was, it was a move in the right direction, but it was all about this, this issue of evil that he came to, that he was working through. The influence of Plato, he argued that there existed a world beyond what we see, that's true. The ideal realm where perfection exists, dualism. That is having both body and spirit, and they dual. And you're thinking, I don't understand that. Well, good. That means you're normal. Plato, you know, you're talking about Plato. You're talking about uh, philosophy. If you've ever taken a philosophy class, one, one man told me is this is what philosophy is. Philosophy is a man walking into a black room, blindfolded, with the lights out, looking for a dog that isn't there. <laughs> There you go. And that's, it's really true because they just come up with questions for this and that. And, and by the way, I love philosophy. I have, a, I have a doctorate in philosophy. There's good philosophy and there's ridiculous philosophy. Good philosophy is thinking through a problem. It's thinking through using reason and logic and negating this and affirming that based on reason and logic. And reason and logic are what God gave us. God is, after all, if you know John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was... The Lagos, the word, that's right, the word, reason, the Lagos, it was existing with God. Where God goes, so goes logic. Logic wasn't a creation of God, God is that. When he exists, it exists. Anyway, you see him working through this. He wrote the book Confessions. If you ever, one of the books on your, on your list, every Christian should read the Confessions of St. Augustine. It is his, you want to know why I call you wretched sinners? And it's amazing that people have told me, a lady told me the other day, she said, when we came to your church, first of all, in 2008, I told myself I would never come back here. And, and I said, can I ask why? She said, no one's going to call me a sinner. And I never knew it was so offensive to be called a sinner. I just always knew I was a sinner. So I thought you knew too. A lot of people come to church and they don't want to be told they're sinners. But when you read Confessions, this is what I grew up on. I grew up on a man talking about the sin in his life. And constantly, he can't get away from it. Martin Luther couldn't get away from it. Augustine couldn't get away. That's what his Confessions is. That's what the book is. It's a testimony of his conversion. Read it. It's wonderful. You can probably download it for free. Uh, He returned to North Africa and he found that a monastery there. He was made a priest. He thought he could hang there for a while, but his brilliance brought him out. Not that he came out. He was found and he was made the Bishop of Hippo Um, while he was working through his issues. And he had, let's say he had the same problem as Jerome. This man liked to, to be with the women. He liked the nightlife of Rome. And so, trying to get away from that. He was trying to find a God or a system that allowed him to do that. And he even says one of his things in confessions is, Lord, I'm fine following you, just not now. Maybe later. I'll give that up. Knowing he needed to give it up. Um, He maintained this concubine that he had had for years. And while he's in his backyard, there's a fence separating a garden. He hears a little girl. we we'll talk about God's sovereignty. He hears a little girl. No one knows who this girl is. And she is in the backyard on a swing saying, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. He goes to a certain manuscript of Romans, it was chapter 13, that says this, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Romans 13, 13 to 14. And his life was never the same. He was one of those guys that picked up seemingly a random text after hearing a little girl talk. God does this, doesn't he? I certainly did it with a gust and his life was never the same. He was baptized by Ambrose. He admired Ambrose's ability to speak. He was a big rhetorician. It's a great word. Uh, you get a, a degree in rhetoric. That's what you teach your kids and you put them in a, in a classical school. You're giving them the, the, uh, the education of the Roman Empire. Didn't work for the Roman Empire, but it is, it is detailed and it's Latin-based. Um, but uh, uh, what they, today's communications degree is the old degree of rhetoric. And it was about, but it was a little bit more in depth back then. It was about fighting, arguing, sitting around a table, uh, verbal arguing, give this premise and then beat it and talk about it. Talk it to death one after another. One, it's kids talking. It's not kids on a phone memorizing something and going and spitting it out on a test. That would be a classical education. He admired Ambrose's ability as a rhetorician. So he we went to hear him speak, trying to learn how he spoke. And God worked in it. He sought out his expertise in rhetoric, but was converted by Ambrose's message. Converted later on, signed, sealed, and delivered by the little girl. Ambrose never knew what Augustine would accomplish. He died before Augustine rose to fame. Um, But uh, he had this great and major impact. And isn't that great? I love those stories because you just never know who you're impacting. You never know what something you said can mean. You don't have to be a preacher to do it or a missionary. When you exude the word of God when you live the word of God, when the Holy Spirit possesses you as it does all Christians, people watch, people see, they hear, and there's something going on with you that others are noticing. Uh, Take it seriously. Don't take a day off. There's no worldly days in Christianity. You don't get a day off. Uh, You don't need a day off from being a Christian. People are impacted. They will see Christ in you. Donatism, we looked at Donatism in the past uh, and St. Augustine. The Donatist name arose from Donatus, an early bishop of Carthage uh, who led a protest against Catholic practices. Donatist charges centered on the fact that certain Catholic bishops had handed over the scriptures to be burned during the persecution under Diocletian uh, prior to Constantine's rules. We've looked at the Donatist on at least three occasions in the past. There was just a group of people led by one man that said those people under persecution, under the threat of death, turned over the scriptures to be burned. And they renounce and or they renounce their faith so that they could save uh, their lives. And once Constantine came to power, what do you do with these people? That They were weak. They were spineless. Donatus said, get rid of them. They're not Christians. Augustine learned about grace. Uh, Donatists said apostates could never be forgiven for caving in under persecution. Disloyal bishops could not perform real sacraments and the validity of the sacrament rested in the worthiness of the bishop. So if you come to church one day and you're baptized by a bishop that had turned over scriptures or had caved into the pressure under persecution, uh, the Donatists said your baptism or the Lord's supper you took means nothing because the person that fed it to you or gave it to you was uh, questionable of questionable character. So God's grace, the Donatists said, was not given. So Augustine is now thinking about God's grace. He said a sacrament's validity comes from God working through weak and sinful people. And it doesn't matter if the person that, person that baptized you caved under the pressure. Sovereignty of God. We're big in the sovereignty of God at Harvest Bible Church. Sovereignty of God is God is in charge of everything. Everything. He's over everything. He didn't start the world and say... Let's see what's going to happen. Let's get this ball rolling and see what goes on. He's not a deist. Uh, deists believe that God made the world. He spun it into to, uh, uh, existence, and then he went off on some cosmic fishing trip and let it go. And, and he doesn't listen to prayer. It's just it's all up to us. Now, God is sovereign. He knows who? He knows names. He knows numbers of hairs on the heads. He understands people. He made people. He knows the beginning from the end and everything in between. He's not learning God's sovereignty. He knows who will come to faith. He's not thinking, wow, this is ridiculous. I gave people Jesus and all these great things. And just so few are coming to faith in Christ. He knows who will come to faith because he elected those who would come to faith. This is the sovereignty of God. That's why we call it sovereign grace. The source of any good in man, Augustine says is God only and this is all going someplace. How many of you ever heard of Pelagianism Pelagius? Well, this is where we see Augustine learning this and he's going to have God is preparing him for this huge debate that the source of any good in man is God that all are born slaves to sin because of original sin. By the way, Augustine coined the phrase original sin, the first sin that committed between Adam and Eve. That was the original sin. He coined that phrase. And so he said all were born slaves to sin because of original sin and Adam and Eve. By the way, did he just come up with this and say, that sounds like a good idea? If you read Romans 5, he had the Bible. Paul said, as in Adam, all die through Christ, all can live. So he he has a Bible. He's not just coming up with philosophical concepts. So he knew that, that sin began with Adam and Eve and that it was passed on to every human being thereafter. Thus, we are all able, all we are able to do is evil, always choosing for self. Now, when I say always able to do evil, can non-Christians do good things? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The answer to the question, I should say, is why are they doing good things? Why would an unbeliever do something good? Look good. Look good. What? Make, Make, them good. Good. Make them feel good. Self-benefit. Self-benefit. Yeah. Earn points with, you know, the man upstairs. The man upstairs. There's a selfish element to it, even good. And we want everybody to do good. So doing good is, it's not like we chose good and therefore we're good. We choose good for selfish reasons when we're not in Christ. And he, he gets this. So that's why I ask you, does it remind you of a local preacher? Always choosing for self. I, I tell you this all the time. You're a wretched sinner. We're born that way. We're conceived by mama and dad that way. Thus, Augustine emphasized God's grace the unmerited favor of God. In other words, he gave that favor to us without us doing anything to merit it. All good is a result of God's grace. Before John Calvin and Martin Luther, John Knox, St. Augustine preached the teachings of Jesus and Paul. It's not our good works that commend us to God, Augustine said, for all our works are tainted with evil. He said, salvation is a free gift given to undeserving people. Isn't it interesting that the Roman Catholic Church hails St. Augustine as one of their saints? And this is what he believed. That man cannot earn salvation. That the scripture teaches that God freely gives his grace to those whom he chooses. This was the solution that Augustine emphasized. That humans are saved because God chooses to save them. Did he make this up? Any reading of the New Testament tells us that this man read the new testament that 's where we get it it's amazing that people will call us uh Bible Church used to go to Denton Bible Church, and the pastor used to tell us that we we get I get letters all the time they call us d b c Denton Bible Church deceived by Calvin and I thought well that, that's odd you know and I remember even then going why would why would they say that deceived by John Calvin is not our teacher. John Calvin was a 16th century wonderful man and preacher of the Bible that God wrote, that Jesus wrote, that Paul wrote, the apostles wrote. Don't ever let anyone accuse you of being a Calvinist unless you are actually a follower of the man John Calvin, which would absolutely appall John Calvin. Uh, John Calvin would, would have you arrested and perhaps killed. I mean it literally. When I say literally, I always mean it literally, by the way. I don't say I was climbing the walls, literally. I hate when people do it. Uh, John Calvin would never allow that. In fact, in a day when church and state were the same, your heresy against the church was punishable by death. It's one of the things that came to John Calvin. So any of that, Augustine is preaching the Bible, other men came along later, and women, and were doing the same thing. So comes along this man named Pelagius. I got him in boxing gloves here which is not, uh, wasn't a physical confrontation. His controversy with Pelagius, Pelagius was from uh, England. He made his way down to Rome. He was an ascetic teacher who came from Britain to Rome, claiming that man is not so corrupted by original sin so as to not be able to help himself, that there is much a human can do to earn God's favor and to perfect him or herself. Folks, this is the predominant teaching in the church today. And when I say predominant, 95% of all churches on the planet are teaching Pelagianism. Or what some will call semi-Pelagianism. It's really the same thing. It's either God or it's me. And if it's me and God, then it's not all God. And if it's not all God, then God doesn't get all glory. We reserve glory for ourselves if it has anything to do with us. Pelagius taught that all humans sin by decision, believe that original sin is a devil-made-me-do-it defense, that Christians must own their salvation and sanctification by choosing God. I mean, I grew up in the Baptist church. You want to be a Christian, at the end of a good sermon, quote-unquote good sermon, you know, the song, I have decided to follow Jesus is sung over and over and over until six or eight people come forward, and the pastor finally feels good enough that these people decided to come. They made the decision. They chose God. I grew up thinking that I've decided. I decided to follow him. <laughs> when I read the Bible, I realized God decided to choose me, and 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 drew me to Him through His, uh, I should say, irresistible grace. Here's a picture. So when you look at the anthropology of Pelagius, he says that sin does not corrupt man's will. I should say his mind, emotion, or will. That he is spiritually alive. Interesting that Ephesians 2, Paul says, God made us alive spiritually. What do you have to be for God to make you alive? Plenary ability, meaning I have all the ability. Every ability that I need is mine and a denial of man's depravity. The anthropology of Augustine, he said that sin corrupts man's mind, motion and will, that he is spiritually dead, that he is plenary or completely or unable. And that's why we get the word total depravity. So if you know what the tulip is, it's not a, a, a flower. It is a flower, but we use it as an acronym tulip. The first letter really says everything totally depraved. And most people believe that totally depraved. If you're totally depraved, you're in trouble. Totally depraved means I'm dead spiritually. I'm dead spiritually. You ever see a, a a dead person, a physically dead person do anything by their own will. I'm told that physically dead people can twitch. And even I've heard some really nightmare stories of what happens to some of them in the, uh, in a funeral home overnight, but uh, it's not by their own will that they are deceased in the same way. Spiritually, we are unable to do anything spiritually to please God himself, we must be made to do it. That's why we believe we are totally depraved, spiritually dead. So you look at the the middle one. There uh, is Pelagius. He denied original sin, uh, plenary ability, denied that, denied that. Gracious is not necessary. Grace is not necessary. Don't need God's grace. It's based on knowledge of God's foresight. In other words, God saw down the corridor of time. What does Pelagius do with the words election in the Bible? He takes foreknowledge, as many do, and says, God saw down the corridor of time, saw who would choose him and chose them. Let me ask you a question. If that was the case, why would God need to choose anybody? If he saw down the corridor of time they were going to choose him, that's absurd. Why would he need to choose anybody? Um, That's like painting a target on the wall after you've already thrown the dart. Uh, God knows who are his, he knows them intimately, and that's what Augustine said, he affirms original sin, that in the natural will we are unable, we have inability, that grace is absolutely necessary because we're sinners in in deserving death, and that God's predestination is based on his love, his foreknowledge. So follow me in this. Um, You've read a translation before the Bible where it says something like in Genesis 4, Cain knew his wife. You think, well, of course he did. Every man knows his wife. But what does it mean? He, he had sexual relations with his wife. He knew her. He already knew her name. So he knew her name. He knew her as a woman that he lived with. And then he knew her intimately. That's what the word means. It's a it's a, a figure of speech to not have to say words that, that might be offensive. He knew his wife. And it's a word that's used throughout other writings. So the same word in knowledge for knowledge. When God knew us, he knew us intimately. Let me go back to a passage and uh, we'll look at it Sunday in, uh, in Luke, but let's th- think about it in terms of Matthew or Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, 21 to 23. Jesus uh, says, uh, speaks of closing the door and people come and they knock on the door. At the end, they've, they've died and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name, prophesy in your name? Did we not do miracles in your name? And what does he say? Depart from me. I never knew you yet. We know that God knows all people. What he's saying is it's not that I don't know your name. Obviously he knew them enough to know they didn't belong in his kingdom. It's an intimate knowledge. You are not mine. So when we look at God's foreknowledge, it's God going down the corridor of time before anyone is born before anyone's ever before the planet is here and having intimate knowledge of his own people. I think it's illustrated well in the parable of of the, uh, the the wheat and the tares, where where the farmer in the in the parable has these wheat seeds in his hands. These are his seeds. He knows and they're wheat, and he plants them. Someone comes along later. He says it's the enemy. Calls him the devil, and he sows weeds among the wheat. They look alike, but they're not alike. God knows those who are His. That's the foreknowledge. He has intimate knowledge. Of those who are his own, as opposed to the to the view that's very prevalent even today, where God knew who would who would accept him, so he accepted them or chose them. That's not what foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge is God's intimate knowledge of his own people. And Augustine knew this. Uh, You probably can't read that font, can you? Well, I can't on my screen, so I'll put these on So Pelagius said this Adam would have died whether he sinned or not. Yet we know that death comes in by one thing. What? Sin. That Adam's sin injured only himself. Funny. uh, I'm a sinner because of Adam and Eve. Children are born in the state in which Adam was before his fall. Innocent and wonderful. Why do they scream the whole time? The law and the gospel both lead to the kingdom of heaven. The law keeps us because we can't keep the law. I wish Pelagius, Pelagius, give me one example of one person in the history of the world that kept the law perfectly, other than Jesus. Even before the coming of the Lord, there were no men, or there were men, without sin. That neither by death and sin of Adam does the whole race die, nor by the resurrection of Christ does the whole race rise. Well, Augustine, you've you've got your orthodox theology. He says it right. Sin brought death into the world. All men fell in Adam. Children are born guilty and depraved. No man can enter the kingdom except through Christ. There is none righteous. Just as all men died in Adam, all men can be raised to life in Christ. One's unbiblical, one's biblical. One makes people feel real good, and people like that, and the other one is biblical. In the fall of Rome in 410, Rome fell to the barbarian Goths. Christians were blamed uh, because uh, their God did not save the city or they believe that the Romans by by accepting Christians that their lowercase g-o-d-s gods were, were mad at them so they caused Rome to fall. Rome was a, a moral mess by 410. Augustine responded with his greatest work called the City of God. How many of you have read City of God cover to cover? How many are there in here? Okay. All right. <laughs> if you've ever seen it, there are smaller versions. The smaller version is about like that thick, and the large version is twice that thick, it's about like that. And it's not—it's not easy reading. Uh, so I'm going to summarize it for you tonight. You can say, "I know a little bit about the uh, city of God." City of God consists of all worshipers of the true God of all races, tribes, nations, and tongues living on Earth, living with God. Well, that's easy. Okay, we get that. The city of man consists of the rest of mankind. In other words. Augustine's city of God, after the fall of Rome, he said there are two, there's, there's two cities. There are the people of God and there are the people that are not of God or of the devil. They, in their dualistic ways, are living together. The earthly nations govern portions of the city of man. And in it, we'll see his, you'd see his view of government. He said Christians should obey the laws of government, even though it's the city of man under which they live, because civil government is established by God in Romans 13.1. I believe that. We agree with that. He said, it it matters not what kind of government a Christian lives under as long as that government does not force the Christian to apostatize from his faith. That is, uh, denounce Christ, having believed in Christ. The word apostatize means to fall away. The theory of government in the city of God is that in whatever country a Christian finds himself, he must live as a pilgrim passing through. See if if this is the way you live. Because we find ourselves living in a country, right? As Christians, we are nothing but pilgrims passing through. And yet, unfortunately, we're trying to make this a Christian nation. Well, I mean, We would like to do that ideally, but that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Get rid of that pipe dream. can pray for the country, continue to pray for the country, but it's not going to happen. We are pilgrims. This is not our home. Follow the country's laws. Pray for the leadership that is there, that there may be peace. Hope you do that. First Timothy two, seek the peace of the country, love God and love your fellow man. This is all part of the city of God. This is what he, he teaches in the city of God. It's all biblical. So it's a, it's a great book. Love God and love your fellow man. Not easy to do, but he doesn't say feel it. Love is a verb, isn't it? His view of war. He believes that a Christian should fight in wars for his earthly country. If it is a just war, then we are serving God by securing the peace. If it is an unjust war, then we are strengthened by the trial and we are not responsible for the injustice since our responsibility is to obey the government. That might be helpful to some of you. Others are going, I really don't care about that. It's just that this is where he came to believe in watching the Roman Empire fall and his views of it. So, Trinitarian controversies. With that behind us, Augustine, we've got all the men. We've got all the, everything is settled. The the world sits on wonderful... Uh, minds the minds of great men and their mothers praying for them and the Bible is is there we've got the Bible all 27 books of the New Testament agreed upon by the church understanding that all those books came to be through God the church didn't say these are the books the church recognized that those are the books of the Bible and so now we've got problems and that is people reading the Bible the same problem existed then is today isn't it people read the Bible can understand a lot more than when you come to church and you go, well, I don't agree with that. Well, have you ever read the Bible? People come into my office, if you have a marriage problem, my first question is always, are you reading the Bible? Well, you know, I hadn't done, okay, well, there's your problem. See, two people that are reading the Bible and in hot pursuit of God will have a good marriage by default. Did you hear that? If you're having any marriage struggles, you know, the question that I, I will ask all easy to ask I mean, it's first two or three questions is when did you or you or both of you fall out of fellowship with Christ that's why you're here isn't it you're in my office to try to get me to fix what you messed up and the way I fix it is to bring you back to your roots when did you fall out of fellowship with God wife when did you quit submitting to your husband husband when did you quit loving your wife as Christ loved the church because a man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church a woman married to a man like that's got no problem submitting to a man like that. But women aren't normally attracted to men like that. And so they marry boneheads. The point being is there are not enough men in the church today. Men and, and the confusion out there in our modern day of a man. I'm going to be a man striving to be like Christ. Be a man. All right. So the Trinity easiest thing in scripture to describe, right? It's easier than you think, but it is difficult. And it should be to describe God and the complexity of God. That should be a little bit more difficult. You know, I always tell people when they say, well, I don't understand the doctrine of election. You do. You understand the doctrine of election. Fine. You just don't like it. Before time, God chose those who would be his and saved them during the course of their life. That's not rocket science. It's just hard to accept because we don't always like it. The Trinity, that's difficult. That's difficult to understand. So here's a good picture, or at least a traditional picture. One God, three persons, not three gods. Here's how we say the Trinity. I try to say it as much as possible in a sermon so that you will you, roll off your tongue as well. We believe in one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We believe in one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit very important that you say it that way. One God. There's not God and Jesus. Jesus is God. There's not God and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. They are God. Okay, I'm thinking here's God and here's Jesus. No, no. God is Jesus. There's not here and there. They are all one. They have differing roles. In fact, Sunday morning, I was teaching Giles' class in here, in Ephesians, and we looked at three of the roles, at the three roles within salvation. You've got uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, God the Father chose before time, chose those who would be him, His. In verses 7 to 12, God the Son redeemed those whom God chose and adopted. And in God the Holy Spirit, verses 13 and 14, God the Holy Spirit sealed those whom God the Father chose and adopted, whom God the Son redeemed. Sealed. The work of the Trinity. They're all God. So you see there that the, uh, the Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. They are all God. Each one has a different role. Some thoughts on the Trinity. What substance is God made of? Which is what the early church was asking. What substance is God made of? What is he made of? Well, we know God became a man. So he's, in some sense, he is a, a human But God the Father didn't become a man. God the Spirit didn't become a man. God the Son became a man. If Jesus was begotten by God, what was he like before he became flesh? Good question. How can it be said that God, Jesus the man, and the Holy Spirit can all be God, one God with no division? When Jesus died on the cross, did God die? These are just thoughts, questions to ask about the Trinity. It's what the early church um, worked through. Did Mary give birth to God? Is she the, what they called the theotokos, the bearer of God? Well, in a sense she is. Did she give birth to God? Eh, yes and no. God had existence long before her, but she gave birth to the Son of God. God became flesh through her. So when we look at the pre-Nicene Creed, A.D. 33 to 325, Uh, before the Nicene Creed was given, the apostles up to A.D. 100 clearly accepted the full deity and the full humanity of Christ. Wasn't an issue. The apostolic fathers up to A.D. 150 taught that Christ was existing before his incarnation. Incarnation means to become flesh. He was existing before that. The apologists from 150 to 325, Justin said Christ's role was distinct from the father. Athenagoras said that Christ had no beginning. Theophilus said the Holy Spirit is distinct from the Logos. That Origen himself said the Holy Spirit is co-eternal with God the Father and God the Son. Tertullian believed in three distinct persons and one God. But Arius came along and said that Jesus is not God. This is what begat the, the discussion at the Council of Nicaea. And so you can see in this, uh, I don't know if you can see the the shades You really can't. Well, God is in a, a really a soft shade of blue um, that you can't see. And that soft shade of blue runs all the way under eternity past and eternity future. It's a picture. Uh, I just posted to it. It, it. I didn't realize it wasn't going to show up well. But if you look carefully, you can see that, that light blue. So God is from eternity past, in time, and eternity future. Uh, according to Arianism, Christ was a little bit in eternity past. He's barely in the little blue. And he came into being in time, and he will one day be in the future. And all other creatures, we only came into being in time. So Jesus had a place. He came in before the rest of us, but he did have a beginning according to Arianism. The opponents uh, of the issue, you've got Alexander with the Bishop of Alexandria. Uh, He said that the Father and the Son were over the creation. They were the creators. He gets that from the New Testament. And Arius, uh, who was a presbyter under Alexander, said, no, it was just the Father who created. uh, The Son and creation uh, were, uh, were later, part of creation. So the Council of Nicaea, as we looked at last week, Constantine called this first ecumenical council. The main issue to deal with was Arianism and what Arius was teaching that defined that the father and the son uh, as homoousios, which means of the same substance. Remember we talked about, what did we talk about last week? It's a good, bad word to call somebody. A diphthong. A diphthong. diphthong. Diphthong is two letters coming together. They, they make one sound. Come on, I thought you'd remember that. But the whole issue is over a diphthong, so you've got to remember that. One diphthong makes the entire issue. That, that the main issue that Jesus the Son, and God the Father are homoousios. That's a Greek word for, it means the same substance. You change one letter and make it homoousios, you make it of similar substance, not the same. And that was the issue with Arianism. Uh, Whether Jesus, the issue, was was co-eternal, consubstantial, and co-equal. The results of this Council condemned Arius and Arianism, but it didn't die out. You can condemn him all you want. He still lived on and continued to press his his bad theology. You, by the way, you get the Arianism is, is um, quite prevalent in the Jehovah's Witnesses today. That's what they're trying to tell you when they come to your door. That Jesus is God existing eternally with the Father and the Spirit. That is the, uh, the result of the Council of Nicaea. Jesus is God. Existing eternally with the Father and the Spirit. The key figures of this were Alexander and Athanasius. Alexander being the the bishop of Alexandria and Athanasius being a deacon there. Athanasius uh, uh, made his points ever so delicately. Here he is. He said that Jesus Christ is of the exact same substance as God, homoousios. That no salvation, if one rejects Jesus as God, if one rejects his eternal existence and and eternal past. and, And eternity past. So you'll talk to people today. If they have a different view of the Trinity, they have a different God. Now, I don't know if it's true, but the way I like to think of it is it's one thing to be confused about the Trinity. We all are at some point. It's another thing to get teaching on the Trinity and have someone tell you what the Bible says about the Trinity and reject it. That's not the God I like. I like this God. That's a different God. So it's important what we believe. It's vital what we believe. Don't you think? You can believe something about Jesus. If you don't believe the truth about Jesus, you don't believe in Jesus. That's the importance of teaching the Bible. Telling someone about Jesus is one thing. You can, you can draw them, and they may say, I want to believe in Jesus. And they may say, I believe in Jesus. But if they don't know him yet, that's why people say, well, can you lose your salvation? Well, no. No one can lose what's actually real. But sometimes people are sold a false Jesus. And when they're confronted with the real Jesus from Scripture, they go, eh, I'm I'm not interested anymore. That's why it's important to tell people about the real Jesus, the real God of the Bible, this triune God. And then Athanasius said that Christ had no beginning. The Nicene Creed once again comes up with this. We believe in one God, the Father, all governing, creator of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father as only begotten, that is, from the essence or the reality of the Father, God from God. Or should say, he is God from God. He is light from light. He, that is Jesus, is true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father, through whom all things came into being, both in heaven and in earth, who for us men and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, becoming human. He suffered. And the third day he rose and ascended into the heavens, and he will come to judge both the living and the dead, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, it's, it's light on the Holy Spirit. That's why other creeds will come along that give more on the Holy Spirit. We'll look a little bit. at some crucial statements here of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, true God of true God, not made of one substance with the Father. But those who say that there was a time when he was not, and before being begotten he was not, these church these the church anathematizes which is a really fancy word for saying we curse you. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. These are the crucial statements of the creed. Okay, so here is what we would call the empires of the East and the West. The Western church is red. <clears throat> it's in the red. Now, this is not Republican, Democrat. Probably should have found a different color. But, <clears throat> but the, uh, the Western church, uh, you can see Rome is the center of the Western church. And then Constantinople up here. I was pointing to my screen like that matters. Up in the blue, it's modern Istanbul. Uh, the, that little little divide between Asia and Europe. And uh, uh, these two, you're going to have a pope in Rome and you're going to have an emperor in Constantinople. And they'll always get along. Always be best buddies. No, they won't. Constantine died, passed this on to... to uh, I put Constans, it should be Constantius, and then to Constans, and then to Julian, and then to Jovian, and then to Valens, and then to Theodosius. These were the empires, so the emperors, I should say, in the east. Emperor Theodosius ruled the empire from AD 379 until 395. He was the last emperor to rule both halves of the empire in 395. Theodosius declared Christianity the official faith of the Roman Empire. So whereas Constantine said it's okay to be Christian, And the Edict of Toleration, the Edict of Milan, Theodosius essentially made it illegal to be a pagan, uh, making Christianity the official faith of the Roman Empire. How would you like that if if someone came into the presidency of the United States and said, Christianity is now the official religion of the United States? Yeah, it sounds good, but it, it sounds good back then. Hey, that's great, but it's not a good thing. You will be Christian or you will die. Oh, that'll make a bunch of good converts, won't it? Body, human body, mind divine. Enter the Trinitarian controversies. During the reign of Theodosius, Apollinarius, how many of you have heard of Apollinarius? Alright, you're gonna hear some strange names tonight. A teacher in the Eastern Roman Empire claimed that Jesus had no human mind. Now I like to give these guys a little bit more leeway than they were given in their day. I mean, they're thrown out and cast as heretics. They really, to me, sound like good thinkers. I like the way that they're thinking. And they've helped us in reading their, their, their thoughts come to our own understanding. So uh, I'm not nearly as, as condemning of Apollinarius and some of the guys that follow. But he did teach that Jesus had no human mind. According to Apollinarius, Jesus' body was human, but his mind was divine. That doesn't sound so bad, right, at first? He was a Bishop of Laodicea at 8390. He died in 8390. He opposed Arianism. That's good that Christ was eternal, but he minimized Jesus's humanity, that it was replaced with the Lagos, the divine God. He was condemned as a heretic. So you see his little picture over there, human body, divine nature, divided. Jesus had a human body, not a human mind or not a human mind. Um, you see another picture here. Apollinarism is the denial of the humanity of Christ. So he's, he's human. He's got a soul, but his mind is not really human. He's, he's a, a guy walking around with God's mind. That, folks, Jesus has to be fully human to be able to live as a man, to live our lives and die our death. He has to. If he wasn't human, then he can't be the right sacrifice. If he's not God, then he can't be, God himself can't be satisfied with the sacrifice. Jesus has to be a man. He has to be God. So there's no way to get around that. He's, he's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, or he doesn't have this. He doesn't have that. He has to have these qualities for him to be the lamb of God, for him to make substitutionary sacrifice for us. Apollinarianism didn't go far enough. The great Cappadocians, that's Basil, Gregory of Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa. He, they said, if deity took the place of a human mind, how does that help? It just means deity joined to flesh alone is not truly human. Deity joined to flesh. That's not a human. You need a human. Jesus, the only way he can understand us, as Hebrew says, sympathize with our weaknesses is if he lived our life. He knows what it means to step on a thorn. He knows what it means to smash your hand with a hammer. He knows what it means to be hurt by people. He knows what it means to be hungry, to be tired, to be sick. He knows these things. He felt it. He gets everything we've ever been through. Now you say, well, he wasn't married. He didn't have, his spouse didn't leave him or cheat on him. Oh, it was worse. His best friends betrayed him. He knew betrayal. He understood. So if you are a man or woman out there who've been hurt by a spouse and you think Jesus can't sympathize, oh, he can. More than you think. It's not like Jesus is up there going, I, you know, appreciate the prayers and all, but you know, I didn't get married, so I didn't understand. Understand that he became a man to suffer and endure everything we've been through and more, so that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. So the Great Cappadocians again, if deity took the place of a human mind, how does that help? Deity joined to flesh alone is not truly human. To maintain peace, the Emperor Theodosius convened a church council in the city of Constantinople in eighty three eighty one. So, you can have another church council after Nicaea 50 years later. In Constantinople, more than 150 bishops reaffirmed the Creed of Nicaea while carefully clarifying the relationship between Christ's divine and human natures. So, another church council, the bishops come together. Here's what the Bible teaches. Let's make sure we're all in one accord. Theodosius called this second ecumenical council. Pope Damasus, who was over in uh, Rome at the time, did not attend due to his old age, but the Eastern bishops did. So you've got some in the West not included in this. The issue, as I said, Jesus is humanity and the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit that conceived Jesus or gave Mary the ability to the Holy Spirit. Uh, as a creature and as deity in this particular creed, that Jesus Christ is fully human, and the results of this council condemned Apollinarianism. Key theologians Gregory of Nazianzus, who was the presiding bishop, and Cyril of Jerusalem. And I'll read. I could read to you the whole creed, but it's really it's just an update of of, of uh, Nicaea, affirming the birth of Jesus as a man, fully human, and given birth by the Holy Spirit. The crucial statement is in response to whether or not the Holy Spirit was fully God. It says this, And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father, who is worshiped and glorified together with the Father and the Son. So in showing that the Holy Spirit was fully divine, uh, we already understood that, that God the Father is fully divine, that Jesus is fully divine. The Constantinople Creed is, yes, Jesus is divine, but he was given birth through a woman by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the crucial statement in Constantinople 381 was. More church councils during this era of tumult. Three more church councils clarified what Christians understood. Uh, scripture to teach about Jesus. There was the Council of Ephesus in 431. That dealt with an Nestorian controversy. Council of Chalcedon in 451. Dealing with Eutychianism and Monophysitism. It's a great word. The second Council of Constantinople in 553. So in Nestorianism, how many of you heard of Nestorius? How many of you care? <laughs> affirmed Nestorian, another good guy thinking through it that gets cast out. What a jerk. He affirmed the deity and the humanity of Christ, but denied their essential unity. Think, what does that mean? I don't know. He believed Jesus was born a man to Mary, then became imbued with a divine nature. Uh, later became God. He denounced the Virgin Mary as the Theotokos, as the God-bearer, which is good. She was maybe, better put, the Anthropotokos, the man-bearer, the God-man-bearer. It's just, just semantics, really. Sometimes semantics push the point, though, don't they? He suggests that Christ has two natures that do not unite to make one person. And here's would be a picture of Nestorianism. Uh, you got the divine nature, the human nature, they're divided. you got Jesus, half man and half God, and uh, more of a duality of personality. Denial of their unity. And again, uh, the main point would be that he was born a man, then became God, or imbued with God. So the Council of Ephesus rose up. We've got to discuss this. Why Nestorius said Jesus was two separate persons, one human, one divine. That Mary was not the Theotokos. The other issue concerned Pelagius' views. What are we going to do about that? Those are spreading around. Everybody wants to think they have a place in, in a choosing of salvation when the Bible says elsewhere. Uh, otherwise, I should say, and Augustine has proven that. The key figure here was Cyril of Alexandria. What happened Nestorius was exiled. So if they don't like your ideas, you're gone. Leave. Don't come back. So here it is. Uh, Eutychianism is called the next one, uh, so, you got Nestorianism gone. So, the next one that comes on the scene is Eutychianism from Eutychus, and it's also called monophysitism or monophysitism. And it would essentially say there's human nature, there's divine nature, mix them together, put them all together, and boom, there's you got. It. So, think about that in a kneading bowl. This, mixture of this, little tea, little lemonade, boom, Arnold Palmer, there it is. I just came up with that out of nowhere. It's amazing. I amaze myself sometimes. I'm an idiot, frankly. It's kind of scary sometimes the things I come up with, and, and I'm really glad some of the things I think up here that I don't say. And sometimes I will catch, I'm talking, I'm teaching, I'm thinking, and I'm going, don't say that. Other times I hear it coming out going, you said that. It's three, it's three people working up here. It's, uh, it's weird. It really is. It's, it's really strange. Eutychianism is what you have. You've got the human and the divine, and they come together to form the humine. Humine. I didn't make it up. picture. Just a picture. Keep you thinking. Eutychus opposed Nestorius saying that Christ was a fusion of human and divine elements. that human and divine nature combined into a single nature or a third nature. That Jesus' human body was different from others. He was more divine than human. Uh, so that's Eutychianism. Now, is it so terrible? Do you look at this and go, "That's that just infuriates me. Arius infuriates me. These guys, they're working through it. And I like that. But no, we're going to have a council and kick him out too. Council of Chalcedon 451, Emperor Marcion called the Fourth Ecumenical Council in Chalcedon, just north of Nicaea. The main issue, monophysitism, Christ's divine nature, condemned Eutyches. And monophysitism declared Christ's two natures, unmixed, unchanged, undivided, inseparable, inseparable, which is true. The key figure was Pope Leo I and this, and you've got the Council of Chalcedon, um, or what it came up with. They said, did Jesus's divine nature swallow up his human nature? The bishops affirmed that Jesus was one person with two natures, saying this, Christ is recognized in two natures without confusion, division, or separation but not as if Christ were parted in two persons. So there's one God. Jesus is God with a human nature and a divine nature. He has two natures. You and I only have a human nature, don't we? We can only act according to our human nature. We are given, however, the Holy Spirit. We are given a divine nature. Now, we're not God as a result, but we have the mind of God. The Holy Spirit possesses us. We know right from wrong when God indwells us. Now, we've already been, become horrible sinners up to that point, but God in us, we can theoretically never sin. How many of you have actually never sinned after you came to know Christ? How many of you, if you, you had would admit it? No, I mean, theoretically, yes, and you think, I don't have to do this. But what does Paul say in Romans 7? Paul makes us feel real good in Romans 7. The things I don't want to do, I do. The things I hate, I do. Now, I don't think that meant Paul went out and caroused at night because he didn't want to do it. The doing for Christians of not wanting to do is the thing are the things that go on up here. I don't want to do that. I don't want to. For me, it's about I don't want to not forgive. I was just telling Cheryl again today, you know, I struggle so hard with forgiveness, not because I want to hold a grudge. I don't want to hold a grudge. I want to be free of that. I want that. I beg God for that. God, free me of that, that bitterness. I want that, but I don't do that because I choose not to, because it's just there. God is in me to make me hate the sin. I'm still there, the flesh, and the flesh is fighting. Feed it, Lance. Feed it. No, defeat it, Lance. Defeat it. It's that war. We have the divine nature or the divine God living in us, but we still fight it. Jesus, however, was one God with two natures, always was. And that's the Council of Chalcedon. And there's the Orthodox position of the Chalcedonian creeds reads reads this, this way. We teach man to acknowledge Jesus Christ at once, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a rational soul and body of the same essence, homoousios, with the Father, at the same time of the same substance as ourselves, begotten of the Father before eternity, but in respect to his manhood, begotten of Mary, who gave birth to him who is God, recognized in two natures without confusion, without separation. The distinction of natures is in no wise annulled by their union, but rather the natures of being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance. That's a good one to memorize. That, that, that puts together what we believe about God. One God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Go to bed tonight reciting that if you don't already know it. And then there's the Council, Second Council of Constantinople uh, to deal with the monophysite, uh, monophysite theology. It became popular again if you don't kill all the people that think it, which you can't do. Uh, it comes back. What happened? The council denounced both Nestorians and Monophysites once again. You can keep denouncing them, but they keep showing up, don't they? All right. So, are you a Trinitarian? Everybody think you believe in the Trinity? How about a test? Let's go through a quiz. I worked hard on this. Copied a little bit. <laughs> Copied a little bit from a friend of mine. Worked hard on the rest. So, are you a Trinitarian? Number one. Is there more than one personae in the Trinity? Yeah, persona, yes. It's a good word, isn't it? Yeah. Michael. Um, it's, it's really the the plural of, of personal, personality. Is there more than one persona? Um, so if you say yes, we can move on to the next slide. But if you say no, and you say no, there isn't any, there's only one personality in, in the Trinity, then you would be a Patripassian. <laughs> I'm not making this up. From Praxeus. He said that God the Father himself became a man, hungered, thirsted, suffered, and died. That God the Father became a man. Or Sibelianism, which is today called modalism from uh, Sibelius, that God is unity without distinction and has revealed himself progressively in three forms. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. T.D. Jakes is of this. One Oneness Pentecostals are this way. Some Charismatics uh, is that, that God is not one God existing eternally in three distinct persons, father, son, Holy spirit is that God is a mode. Sometimes God is a father. Sometimes he's a son. Sometimes he's a spirit. He goes back and forth in different modes. It's what's called Sabellianism. So if you say there is more than one persona in the Trinity, then we go to the next slide. If you're the other two, we're going to have to cast you out and, and exile you. <laughs> have all members of the Trinity existed eternally with God. Okay, yes, so we can go to the next slide. But if you say no, and I know you won't say it if you do, but if you do, then you're an Arian and who said that God created Jesus before anything else and created the rest of the world through him. Jesus was made of a different substance, heterousios or homoousios from the Father. Jesus was something less than God and something more than man. There are more people than you believe think that today. Yeah, Todd? Isn't that kind of like Mormonism a little bit? Uh, it is. It's a like, like Mormonism, uh, but it's it's really Jehovah's Witness. Mormonism is, is these gods have existed. There are gods everywhere. And uh, the more people, people have more babies, more and more babies. They're giving those spirits out there uh, humanity, and those gods are living in the people, blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's much more. Like, for instance, Arianism, he only believed in one God. Mormonism believes in a multiplicity of gods. So it's more like Jehovah's Witnesses in that regard. But it does have similarities to Mormonism. So we can all go to the next slide because you're all on the S. So far, you're Trinitarian. So, are the members of the Trinity on an equal level with God? Yes. yes. All right. Well, if you say no, then you are Semiarian. Uh, Eusebius, uh, who uh, said Eusebius of Nicomedia, uh, Jesus was said Jesus was created by God, but before eternity, he is subordinate to God. He was made of a similar substance, homo homoousios, to God. Very similar to the previous one but we believe that all the members are on equal level with God. And it really comes down to, you think, well, the father is the top dog over the father, over the son and the Holy spirit. Well, only in only in regard to submission. I mean, take, take marriage, uh, a husband and a wife. Um, Cheryl is no less than me. She's a woman. I'm the man. I've been given a responsibility that makes her submissive to me, but I'm not better than her. In no way am I better. No man is better than his wife. But God has given us a different role. In fact, if we read First Corinthians 11, uh, Paul speaks of God, the father, God, the son, the husband, the wife. And in other places, he puts the children under them. But in First Corinthians 11, it's God, the father, God, the son, the husband, the wife. Now, is God, the father better than God, the son? No, they are. It's not a, a hierarchy. It's a matter of submission. In fact, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 10 says um, that a woman should have a symbol of authority in her head. Now, I understand that's difficult today. You're going, wait a minute. Why aren't women wearing hats? I think it was a, uh, a woman doesn't have to wear a hat to show that she's submissive to her husband. In that society, she did, at least in the Corinthian church. But in 1 Corinthians 10, it says, and a woman should show her submission to her husband. Why? Because of the angels. Angels. Because of the angels, what does that mean? It means angels are watching. It means that angels are observing what's going on here. And a woman being submissive to her husband, I say a wife submissive to her husband, is on par with watching Jesus the Son submit to God the Father. And we see him in the garden submitting to God the Father. Lord, Father, he says, if, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, my human will, to, to suffer this way, Your will be done, submission, because of the angels. Isn't that that great? Puts a whole new spin on submission in marriage. So what you have is uh, we're on par. They're they're equal. There's no hierarchy, but they do submit to each other. So we go to the next one. Um, Was Jesus made of physical matter? Yeah. Yeah, it's easy. This is an easy quiz. But if you say no, and you want to make that public, you are a docetic which came about by came about by Syrenthus in uh, around 80 90 that he said that Jesus was a phantom spirit he was not crucified that what you thought was a real man was just appeared to be a man remember we talked about docetism that guy looks just like a man but he's not really a man you can't go see him and touch him you won't be able to it also brought about gnosticism later by valentinus and uh, Marcion, around AD 160, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are eons, or ions. They are links in the chain between God and matter. So the main God in Gnosticism is up here. He's not our God. He's not Yahweh. Uh, they've, this God up here, and then there's this whole mess of little gods, one of which was Yahweh, according to Gnosticism. A foolish sub-God who made matter and the earth, the world, uh, because all matter is evil to this God up here. Uh, that's what they say. So when we say that Jesus was made of physical matter; he had to be. In fact, we read—I was reading Second Peter today, just as part of my reading—and and Peter is saying, "He said we saw him on the mountain. We touched him. John said we ate with him. We tell you what we saw and experienced. We lived with him. He was a man. And as I told you before, First John is written by the Apostle John, and he keeps using the word gnosis throughout." I know, we know, we know. He's being very sarcastic toward the Gnostics who say, we know. He's going, oh, no, no, no. We know we were there. We touched him. We saw him on the mountain. So, yes, he was made of physical matter. He had to be to die like us. So, was Jesus complete human body, soul, and spirit? We say yes. Paul and said no. He said Jesus had a human body, soul, but not a human spirit. In its place was the divine Logos. The Logos became flesh, not the Logos became spirit. Jesus was completely God, but not completely man. We think he's both. Are the human and divine natures of Jesus Christ an organic unit? Yes, yes of course. You already see it. Got to say yes at this point. If you say no, you're an Nestorian. that Mary is not the mother of God. She bore Jesus, not the Logos. She gave birth to a man in whom the union with the Logos had begun. The Logos did not become man, but it united with a man, which totally contradicts John one one. So there are two separate natures in Jesus, one divine, one human, and each retained its particular traits. So are you an orthodox believer? If you said yes to all the questions, then you are a creedal believer who accepts the wording of the Nicene Creed and the later ones that clarified it. Goodness! I thought I was early. I am so sorry. No one was... No one was falling asleep. I I thought I was 10 minutes early. All right, Misty, I know you can hear me. I'm sorry. Uh, Have a good evening. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.